0: Well, my name is Hunter Hambrick. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you so far, I hope I get to do that after service today. I'm one of the staff people here. And if it's your very first time with us this morning, we are so, so excited that you're here. Hope you felt welcomed and greeted on your way in. Uh, it's a huge honor for me to share God's word with you this morning. Ephesians is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite books of the Bible. It's a beautiful letter in Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 1 through 10 is where we'll spend our time together this morning. So you can go ahead and flip or scroll there and meet me in Ephesians chapter 2, if you've not done so already. Uh, Before we jump into things, I'd like to take a moment to provide a little context of where we've been and where we'll be going in the weeks and months ahead. Ephesians was written 2,000 years ago by a man named Paul. Paul was an apostle, a very significant and influential leader in the early church. He actually is maybe one of the most influential people of all time. And he wrote this letter to a group of believers living in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, uh, where Matt and the Champlins just have been serving. Uh, Two weeks ago, Jason preached a fantastic message on chapter one, verses one through 14, and uh, those 14 verses actually comprise the longest sentence in the entire New Testament. Uh, No easy feat to preach from, uh, but he did a great job, and he talked about the selection of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, and the seal of the Holy Spirit. He argued that the main theme that Ephesians is going to be driving home again and again and again is that God has redeemed us to be the church. Amen. God has redeemed us to be the church, a community of love for his glory. Last week, Josh covered verses 15 through 23 of chapter one and talked about the hope to which we've been called the riches we've inherited, and the power we now possess because of Christ's burial, resurrection, and ascension. Over the coming weeks, chapters 2 and 3 will continue to unpack this marvelous mystery of the gospel. How is it that not only we have been reconciled vertically with God, but horizontally with one another? How is it that Jew and Gentile, Two disparate, hostile groups can be in loving relationship with one another. Sandwiched between all of this stands our passage today, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. If you're taking notes this morning, and I hope that you are, I'd like to preach a message to you entitled, Dead, Alive, Enlisted. Dead, Alive, Enlisted. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for sacrificing your son on the cross in our place on our behalf. No greater love has anyone than this than to lay down their life for their friends. God, we thank you that we are not just your servants, we are your friends, we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High King, and we thank you, God, that Jesus did not just come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive, and we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit in this room today, you would do just that, you would breathe fresh life on dry bones. It is... In Jesus' name and for his sake, that we ask this and that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Well, uh, last week, Josh confessed to his need to use reading glasses. So I figured I'd keep the vulnerability train going and let you know that I have started Rogaine. That's right. Your boy is balding. And uh, yeah, I took the month of June off, as many of you know, to seek the Lord and fast and pray. And as part of that, I did what's been called the New Nazarite Vow. Now, I won't bore you with the details of that, but the Nazarite vow does include letting the hair on your head grow long and then shaving it off. So it wasn't for a long time, but from June 1st to June 30th, I did not cut my hair. And then at the end of the month, when the vow had ended, I shaved my head completely. My wife was pumped. She was just so, so happy about that. Uh, but man, I turn 28 next month, and I'll tell you, nothing quite like a receding hairline to tell you, hey, you look like you're almost 30. You know, you're you are uh, you're getting old, getting old, not so young anymore. Um, and so it became evident that I needed Rogaine to come to my rescue. Uh, the next five minutes are going to be a shameless plug for Kirkland Signature Minoxidil Solution Hair Wreath Growth Treatment for Men. Uh, I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> not going to do that. Uh, but the way Rogaine works, and I had to get with off brand, I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't pay that ticket price for the real deal stuff, is that you basically have dead skin cells on your head. You have dead follicles. And the way this stuff supposedly works is that you put the treatment on your hair and it helps the dead skin cells come back to life. It's a miracle grow for men, um, basically. Uh, Unfortunately, though, this stuff only works about 60% of the time, and it can take up to four months of treatment to see results. Uh, You have to apply this stuff twice a day, and I know this is TMI, but uh, if you are not disciplined enough to apply the product twice a day, every day, you will immediately begin to see the results reverse their course. And uh, I have recessive genes on both sides of my family, so time will tell for this guy. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 2, flawless segue, right? Uh, We find Paul not talking about dead skin, but dead souls. These dead souls are helpless and hopeless in and of themselves, totally incapable of giving themselves Life, But by the grace and mercy of God, they can encounter resurrection power. This resurrection power doesn't take four months to occur. No, its results are instant. This new life doesn't have a 40% fail rate, but a 100% resurrection rate every single time. This miraculous act is not temporary like Rogaine. No, no, no. It has permanent power. And its effects aren't reversible or only available to some. No, this miracle, new life for dead souls, continues on into eternity as a free gift for all. The beauty of this good news, though, first begins with bad news. That apart from Jesus, we, you and I, every single person born and under the sound of my breath are dead, dead, dead. Humanity apart from God, cannot help itself, never has, never can, never will. And that is what verses one through three of Ephesians chapter two are all about. Before Christ, we were dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Everybody say once walked. This haunting passage calls to mind images of death and dying, similar to that found in Ezekiel chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. Anybody read that before, Ezekiel 37? Pastor Ray preached on it a few months back. It's like a scene from a haunted movie. There are these uh, cold corpses and dead skeletons lined strewn across the valley, waiting for God's breath to breathe on them closer to home, this idea of being dead conjures up uh, to mind uh, zombies. Uh, We live in a pretty zombie obsessed culture, wouldn't you say? For whatever reason, us Americans, we love our zombie movies and shows. Uh, Maybe the hit TV show, The Walking Dead, the off-Broadway musical smash, Zombie Prom, I mean, even Pirates of the Caribbean and uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Anybody seen that? There are these images of dead things that are alive, but not really living. Unlike our beloved TV or movie characters, things are worse for us. Because we don't stand physically dead, brothers and sisters, we stand spiritually dead. With no hope of new life, as verse 12 will tell us next week. And it's not just pirates or Marvel superheroes, but all men and women who stand in need of new life, good and bad, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, rebellious and religious. We all need the breath of God to breathe in our lifeless lungs. I wonder, has God breathed in you today? Not only were we dead, though, this text teaches that we were deceived, enslaved, and condemned. One framing which might be helpful for us at this point is one used by Christian writers throughout the ages called the world, the flesh, and the devil. This unholy trinity, this terrible trio, appears throughout scripture and has been used throughout church history to describe how the world, the flesh, and the devil attack us and rebuke us. All three of these figures are found in the These verses. Let's start first with El Diablo himself, Satan. Verse 2 teaches that apart from Christ, we were deceived by the devil. Here at Providence, we affirm, along with all Orthodox faithful believers, the existence of a literal creature who embodies the source of evil itself, Satan. But here in Ephesians 2, Paul simply calls him the prince of the power of the air. What a phrase! That is the spirit of the age, the Zeitgeist, now at work, giving and inserting deceptive ideas into our sinful society. Uh, fundamentalist pastors of a bygone era actually thought that this phrase referred to radio waves. So when the radio was first invented, they thought that was the pr- that was Satan, that was the prince and the power of the air. I wonder what they might say about you know smartphones and streaming services today. Amen. But the idea of the air as a place where demons lived actually was pretty well known in Jewish thought. Uh, Philo, the brilliant Jewish philosopher, talks about demons hovering in the air. First Enoch, a well-known Jewish text from around this time, talks about demons dwelling in the clouds. Now, we may think this is all pretty primitive to our late modern minds, right? Uh, But just imagine for a second living in a world where you didn't understand how lightning and thunderbolts and cloud formations work. You know, the ancients were brilliant in their own right. But if I looked up into the sky in the middle of a thunderstorm and I didn't know what was going on, I might think there was a demon or two up there as well. Not just for the Jews, but also for Gentiles, like these recently converted Ephesian believers. This phrase would have made total sense. Last week, Josh talked about how the Ephesians used to practice magic, the occultic arts. You can check out Acts 19 if you want to kind of get a recap of all that for yourself. It's fascinating. And best believe we still have witchcraft going on today. Just walk up and down Larimer on a Friday night if you don't believe me. Not to mention the equally demonic expression of political polarization, rampant tribalism, moral relativism, and deconstruction going on in our culture. Best believe, friends, the devil is at work today. Not only that, before Christ, we were enslaved to our flesh. The flesh can be described as disordered desires of the body and the mind. Now, just to clarify, the body is not bad. Amen? Amen. Let's all say that together. The body is not bad. The flesh is what is our problem. You see, the biblical story does not begin in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall. It begins in Genesis chapter 1 with creation. God made men and women in his image and likeness to rule and reign with him over the good world that he created, but... In Adam and Eve, our ancient ancestors, each one of us has inherited a sinful state of disobedience. It stays with us from birth and defines the essence of life that is not really life. In the words of one notorious theologian, Biggie Smalls, I was born sinner opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner? Testify, man, ain't none of y'all saves. All right. Now pour one out for Brooklyn's OG. So it's not our body that's bad, but our fleshly carnal appetites that are wicked, depraved, and self-obsessed. Paul describes this living death in Galatians 5. He says of the Galatian believers, You once were filled and characterized by sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasure, idolatry, sorcery, Quarreling, hostility, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Can I get anyone who can testify that you have been saved and delivered from this lifestyle? Anybody in this church today, thank you, Jesus. So we were deceived by the devil. We were enslaved to our flesh, and last but not least, we were condemned like the world. Children of wrath is a classic Hebrew phrase, and it refers more to our destiny than our, dis- than our condition. It doesn't mean that those in the world are really angry and throwing temper tantrums like toddlers. <laughs> Children of wrath means that we were destined for destruction. All of humanity before Jesus were rebellious objects of God's rightful indignation. God, being rich in mercy, though, desires because his very nature is characterized by love, that he would be in relationship with his children, and he hates anything that gets in the way of his creation. Now, if you're an unbeliever in the room here this morning, first of all, welcome. So glad you're here. But you may be thinking to yourself, Hunter, isn't all of this a bit harsh? Like, is it really true That we should be condemned and deserving of wrath? I mean, I don't know about you, but some of my non-Christian friends are actually more moral than many of the so-called Christians I know. Are they really lifeless? Do they really deserve judgment? Because of common grace, I am well aware that there are many atheists and Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims who are actually more moral than I am or may ever be. And I praise God for their generosity, their kindness, the goodness that they do in this world. But the biblical doctrine of total depravity doesn't teach that all humans are equally bad as one another or that no one is capable of good. Rather, Scripture teaches us that no part of the human experience goes untainted by sin. Our mind, our emotions, our will are totally affected by the fall. And consequently, no human being can go unscathed by judgment. God's righteous, holy standard has been ruptured. Lynn Coick, former dean and professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary, actually thinks that God's wrath is a good thing. She says, God's wrath promises that in the end, Wrongs done to the vulnerable will be punished. Injustices unresolved will be paid up. And the arrogant who abuse others will be silenced. Of course, each of us has done injustice. Each of us has expressed arrogance. And each one of us has misused power. Thus, each of us can rightly be called a child of wrath. But, this is the good part, because of God's grace, no one needs to remain in wrath. No one is doomed to linger in spiritual death. So the question for you and me this morning isn't, are you more moral or less moral than the next person? The question is, are you in Christ or are you out of Christ? Because in the words of Tim Keller, the difference between being in Christ and out of Christ is the same difference as being dead and alive. Secondly, if you're a Christian here today, you may be wondering to yourself, all right, Hunter, if I'm so alive in Christ, then why in the world is there so much of the world in me? Why is so much of my life still characterized by lust and selfishness and envy and greed? I want to be rid of these things, but no matter how hard I try, they just don't seem to go away. For the believer, there is good news. The signs of sin and death may still have a presence in your life, but friends, please believe they do not have to have power over your life. Sin and death still have a pretty big bark, but they no longer have to have a bite. Because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit who raised him from the grave and who, newsflash, now lives on the inside of us, what is true of you today does not have to be true of you tomorrow. We, in Christ, are all on a journey of total transformation. What has already begun is not yet completed, but will be one day at a time. And that is because in and with Christ, we have been made alive. Verses 4 through 7 read, "'But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ.'" by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's been said before that God is the subject of all verbs that matter there are three vitally important verbs that Paul uses in this passage to describe how God transferred us from the realm of the dead to the realm of the living. He actually uses two of these verbs earlier in chapter 1, verse 20, where it says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Uh, This time, though, in chapter 2, Paul slaps on a very important prefix to these three verbs, S-Y-N, sin, sin, sin. In English, we use this prefix to get words like synthesis, synergism, synchronize, or syncretism. So the translation is clear, with, with, with. Because of God's limitless love, what is true of Christ has now already, past tense, been made true of us. Where are we right now? We are with Christ. He is alive, so we are alive. He is raised, so we are raised. He is seated, so we are seated. This is because the biblical writers, Paul especially, understand this phrase being in Christ, not merely as a mystical metaphor, but as a literal, concrete Spatial reality that we inhabit and dwell in upon being joined in our faith union to Jesus what has been made true of Jesus has been made true of us his death is our death his life is our life and his reign becomes our reign this is good news today. Because our primary identifier now as believers is no longer our gender, our race, our class, our criminal background, our education, our nationality, our marital status, our socioeconomic standing, any good but utterly inadequate classification. No, now our primary identifier is in and with the work of Jesus Christ. This is good news today. We were deceived, but now we've been brought to the truth. We were enslaved, but now we've been brought to the now we've been set free. We were condemned, but because our big brother Jesus took the wrath and paid it all, we can be called not children of wrath, but children of love, adopted into God's forever family. Man, if there was ever a time for a praise break in Providence Bible Church, it is right there. But it gets better because. In Christ doesn't just mean I am in Jesus Christ like Kara Ward is in marital union to Hunter Hambrick. Christ is not a last name that we adopt when we inherit God's family. No, Christ is a title which is best translated as Messiah. Who is the Messiah? The Messiah is the king, the hope of all of Israel's dreams, Jesus So watch this now. By virtue of our being joined with the king of all kings, you and me, once dead, deceived, and condemned captives, now share the king's power and the king's authority. So all those principalities and powers we talked about earlier, the tyrannical reign of the world, the flesh, and the devil, it is dead and done. Not only do they no longer hold power, but now we, together as the church, are seated above the powers, above the principalities with Jesus, in the heavenly places. I got to phone my friend Fleming for this one. Your girl writes, the church is not a redeemed boat floating in an unredeemed sea. It is not as if the only thing that has changed is that our sins are forgiven and we person by person come to believe in Jesus. Rather, there has been a transfer of eons, an exchange of one world for another, The powers and principalities may not know it, but their foundations have been undermined and cannot last. The creation itself has been and is being invaded by the new world, the age to come. Translation, because of Jesus' past work on the cross, the future is now. Do you believe that? Do you see yourself as seated with Christ in the heavenly places because... Ephesians 2 says that is the truest thing about you today. Not one day, two day. The king has made us alive so we would reign with him. And he didn't do so haphazardly just because he had to. No, verses 4 through 7 teach that God saved us, thank you God, with excessive mercy, extensive love, expensive grace, and extraordinary kindness. My friends, there is nothing stingy or cold or reserved in God's heart towards you this morning if you are in Christ Jesus. You have been loved with a love that lasts forever. Verses one through three show that we were public enemy number one against the high king of heaven. Verses four through seven show we've been made alive and radically joined to God with Jesus. And verses eight through 10 show that through Christ, we are now enlisted On Tuesday morning, September 11th, the Twin Towers fell to the ground in the middle of New York City. Onlookers worldwide watched in horror on national television coverage as the World Trade Center went up in flames. This single act of terrorism eventually claimed nearly 3,000 lives of American citizens and remains today the most fatal act of terror in U.S. history. There were two men on 9-11 who served as port air authorities. They were named Will and John. They were working that day responding to the attacks when the South Tower began to fall. They raced to an elevator shaft and amazingly survived the 100-story drop all around them, but were buried dozens of feet below the rubble. Trapped without water, inhaling smoke, both Will and John had little hope of survival. They lay there, pinned beneath a mountain of debris without water, choking on ash, but to their benefit, something was stirring inside someone they had never met. Dave Karn spent 23 years as an active duty military officer in the United States Marine Corps. He was watching the scene play out on TV like everyone else, but more than allowing it to trouble him, Dave decided to do something about it. He went to his boss and said, hey, I won't be back for a while, ran home, got his old military fatigues, hoping that his uniform might grant him some clout on the scene. He jumped in his car and drove all the way from Connecticut to Manhattan at 120 miles an hour, arriving at ground zero by late afternoon. While rescue workers were being cleared off the pile, Dave stayed because of his uniform. He saw another Marine officer. The two soldiers then walked the pile side by side, seeking to save the loss. After an hour of searching, they heard the faint sound of tapping pipes and yelling. Will and John had been trapped for nine hours. In the midst of all the wreckage, A Marine who earlier that day had been working as an accountant in Connecticut finally found these two men who were completely incapable of freeing themselves. Of the 20 people pulled out that day, Will Jimeno and John McLaughlin were numbers 18 and 19. All because Dave Carnes took off his suit, put on his fatigues, and stepped into the darkness around him. Just for a moment, Can you imagine if Will Jimeno and John McLaughlin boasted about their salvation? (laughs) Can you imagine if they were like, what can I say? I was trapped under rubble for nine hours, couldn't breathe, fearful of my life, and uh, let's face it, Dave needed me. No, no one would boast about that. Their rescue was an act of grace. And to an infinitely greater degree, you and I lay buried beneath the sin and the shame. Not almost dead, but absolutely dead. And Jesus came down to save us. We had no hope in ourselves. Who would boast about that? Paul doesn't. In Galatians chapter 6 Verse 14, he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Through our union with God because of Christ's cross, resurrection, and ascension, God has made us a new creation. Verse 10 ends where it all began. Dead to death and alive to life, we're walking once more, this time not according to the course of this world and trespasses and sin as verse 1 teaches, but we're walking out good works that God prepared long ago. We're in the army now. We've been enlisted as the king's men, displayed and deployed to bring God praise. Ephesians 2, 1-10 teaches that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ for good works. At this point, there are basically two ways I can end this message. Firstly, I could get you all riled up and let's go, come on, get in the field. There's no junior varsity in the kingdom of God. And let's go out there and go, 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 serve, 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 do, do, do. But I don't think that's really the point of Ephesians 2. And quite frankly, I don't really think it's Providence's problem at this moment. Man, I wish I had time to go around just one by one and call out all the good works that are represented in this congregation. Amen. Our church, you're not supposed to boast about you. I'll boast about you. Our church is known as a leader of justice and neighbor love and hospitality and care for the poor in this city. How how different Denver would be without this church. I praise God for that. So I'm not going to push us toward any more good works as we typically might think of them. I think I think God's proud of you. He's pleased. Keep it up. I don't think I'm going to push us towards good works number 1 because this passage talks about good works, but it speaks of them not as something that we should do, but more as something that is the inevitable outcome of a life that has encountered grace. This is because in the ancient world, bear with me for the history lesson as we close. When Ephesians was written, grace wasn't a get out of hell free card, get out of jail free card, or unmerited favor as we typically talk about it. Grace was a gift that deserved a response. In a world where wealth and property remained in the hands of a relative few, there was no real uh, social safety net or modern welfare system like we think about today, Uh, there were people, the poor, who found themselves in need of assistance, much like the global poor do today. They needed a job. They needed land. They needed food. They needed clothing. And instead of going to the government, what they would do is they would approach a patron. Patrons would give free gifts to their clients, with no strings attached, but for the receiver of the gift, it was entirely appropriate and even expected that they would publicly give back praise to the patron for what they had done, honoring them, being loyal to them, rendering up service and favors if need be. So in the ancient world, grace was totally free, but it wasn't a one-way transaction that got debited to my account, and then that's the end of it. No, grace Deserved a response the gift was free but a response was expected reception of the gift and gratitude for that gift went hand in hand my friends God is our patron and we are his clients and the grace of Jesus appeared to bring us into right relationship with him gratitude is our rightful and inevitable response During June, in my time away, I felt God say to me at several points, hey, Hunter, I'm really proud of you. I love you. I appreciate all that you're doing for me. But I just want to let you know that you don't worship me the way you used to. You don't sing and dance and shout like you did when you first got saved. You don't praise me with the gratitude of a dead person who's been brought back to life. The King made you alive. How could you not praise Him for that? How could I, as a 14 year old kid hooked on porn with no friends, no hope, and no future, but in a moment, Jesus snatched me from the fire of hell? How could I not praise Him for that? And how now, as a 27 year old with a beautiful wife, an amazing church family, a call and a mandate on my life, not get up and praise Him like I was a dead person who got revived again? Providence. (laughs) Ephesians 2 is not a call to do more, be better. Ephesians 2 is a call to worship. It's a call to a grateful response. It's a call to relationship. Worship is the greatest good work we could ever do. It's where our life begins and ends. Because we were dead. We've been made alive. But now we are enlisted in the army to bring God praise. Tonight, we're hosting our first ever prayer and worship night, and this is intentional. Jason talked about a few weeks ago that God has redeemed us to be the church, a community of love for his glory. And I promise you, friends, if we don't get this, if we don't get this burning call to worship, how are we ever going to be a light in our community? I don't know what to expect tonight. It starts at 6, eat your dinner beforehand. And, uh, but I do know that we're going to encounter God. We're going to have an ice cream bar. We're going to have worship. It's going to be fun, but more than anything, I pray that we will encounter the living God and render back praise to him. Maybe you're not able to join us tonight. That's a, okay. We're going to worship in just a second. I'm going to invite Kevin and the worship team to join me right now. But even if you're not able to join us tonight, I want you to worship with us now and, there are three ways that you can respond this morning. Number one, if you have never begun a personal relationship with Christ, I invite you to do so this morning. The Bible teaches that today is the day of salvation. Do not wait a minute more. Jesus' arms are open wide, ready to receive you. We're going to have the prayer team down front, and maybe for the first time or as an act of rededication, if you want to go from death to life this morning, we want to pray with you. We have some rooms available. You can go off in a more private area, and they can answer any questions that you may have. Number two, Maybe you've been a believer or you want to become a believer today, but you've never been baptized. I've got good news for you. Two weeks from today at Confluence Park, 10 a.m., we are going to have a big water baptism service. And this is what Ephesians 2 is all about, buried in sin and raised to new life in Christ. You can come down front to the prayer team or stop by the welcome table after service if you'd like to do that. And number three, the third way to respond this morning, if you're not coming down front, is to worship. And I know we all come from different traditions and different styles. I'm not advocating for a certain style of worship. Maybe you want to sit where you are. Maybe you want to walk up and down the aisles. Maybe you want to raise your hands. Maybe you just want to take a knee. Whatever you need to do, let's worship God and thank him for this great salvation we have in Christ Jesus. Stand with me now. And let's respond as we worship together this morning.